Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We pray that your Holy Spirit will open our minds and our hearts to receive your word today and what you have for us, that you will speak through your servant Ryan, and that his words will fall away and that your words will stand. It's in your great and wonderful name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to hit uh, something head on with this text. If I, I could say I was preaching one a few words in here would really be about the topic of insecurity. Uh, and we're going to look at it from the perspective of Herod, um, the, the king at the time. And, uh, and so, so it's an interesting kind of way to look at this sermon. We've been going through the book of Acts, and it just, this just struck me. and just, I just felt like I needed to spend a morning uh, to address it uh, for us. Uh, so, so as we look at this topic of insecurity, I just want to jump straight in and, and just kind of define what it is. Um, Insecurity, and this is by a guy named John Bloom, he, he wrote this, insecurity is a form of fear that serves as a warning that we're vulnerable to some type of danger and that we need to take protective action. So there, uh, you know, there are some times that um, insecurity is, is uh, warranted and it's healthy, right? You know, uh, you know, for the first two years that we lived in our house, I'll give you an example here, uh, we, ha we had a deck that was barely standing. Anybody got a deck like that on the back of your house? And, uh, you know, it had spindles spaced out so far that your kids could fit through them. And so we're like, oh, you know, kids, you can't go back there on, uh, on the back deck. And so when they would walk out there, we would freak out, and they would feel insecure for good reason, right? So th there are times like that. Other times, you know, uh, maybe there's, there's been something that's happened in a relationship, uh, some, some type of kind of infraction or sin that's come against you, you know, verbally or physically, and that leaves you feeling insecure. That is a healthy insecurity to feel in those moments. Or, you know, let's just say that you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and you're, you're convicted of sin, and, and it really kind of torments you because that conviction is so strong, and you're, you're not following Jesus. That is a healthy insecurity, Right? But what I'm more convinced is our reality a lot of times is this recurrent and unhealthy insecurity that we have that I really want to address today. You know, you think about, think about this. Much of our culture and economy is aimed at targeting and leveraging our insecurities, especially around the, the idea of physical appearance. You know, you think about most plastic surgery late night infomercials, the cosmetic department at your supermarket. I mean, all of these things are geared at leveraging the fact that we feel insecure about the way that we look, the way that we appear. And it's this, this feeling of, it's, it's, more, it's more identity than anything else. It's this feeling that you get when you think about, you know, your you know, it could be like your work or your parenting and your skill level, your appearance, and, and you just are left feeling insecure. 
And here's the crux of where I'm going. Healthy insecurity is the grace of God for us. Unhealthy insecurity uh, is a tool of the enemy that he loves to use in our lives. Insecurity is often a manifestation of identity crisis where we say, who am I? And when we don't know whose we are, everyone gets a say in who we are. Let me say that again. When we don't know whose we are, everyone gets a say in who we are. And so let's dig into Acts chapter 12 together. So if you've got a Bible, open that up. And we're going to look at first the profile of insecurity. So we're going to be looking at this guy named King Herod Agrippa I. So I'm going to read this text again for you. And I want you to listen to this text from the perspective of King Herod Agrippa I here. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That's like 16 soldiers. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to the church. So Herod the king, who is this guy? Well, Herod the king was King Herod Agrippa I, or Agrippa the Great, because who wouldn't want great in their name, their name and title, right? Ryan the Great, right? I mean, just the great, everything is the great. Um, this guy was basically like a, a, a tetrarch, or we would call it a governor of the Roman Empire, over a particular region of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was at its height during this time. They were taking over territory left. And right, so he was he was the, the tetrarch, and he got the title of king under the, the Roman emperor Claudius, and he had this whole region of Judea. And this guy's job was basically to rule and to represent Roman authority among this group of constituents, the Jews, and uh, and of course collect taxes, right? Because somebody had to pay for Rome, so he's, he's collecting taxes. He's doing his job here, and and after all. Um, after all of this, you know, you, you kind of look at the life and values of Roman culture with its Greek influence, and then you look at the life and the values of, of Hebrew culture uh, in Israel, and they're, they're, they contrast. And so this guy kind of found it hard to lead what was going on there. Uh, so, so one of the balances that this guy had to manage was this, was pleasing the people of Judea, all the while remaining true to Rome. So there's this tension, this tightrope that he's these walking. Now, uh, now he had this grandfather. I don't know if you remember him. His name was uh, Herod the Great, another great. <laughs> and uh, he was the king of this area when Jesus was born. And if you remember, do you remember why Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Because there was this, Herod the king got insecure about about what kind of what was going on and so there's this census that's taking place and 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 anyway it kind of pushes everybody back to where they were born and Jesus is is is, is kind of headed out with this with his family and then the wise men after he's born they they they, they end up lying to King Herod the Great and and um, and uh, he gets really frustrated and he says fine all male children two years old and, and younger in Bethlehem let's just kill them all that's what he did because he was so frustrated with what was happening. And, and what you begin to see through these men is that they are deeply, 
deeply insecure men who have tons of power. And you know what happens when a deeply insecure man has tons of power? It's very dangerous for the people under him, right? So let me tell you a little bit about Herod the Great. So he had this thing called Antonia, uh, the Fortress Antonia. I'm going to show you a picture of it real quick. I'm just setting up all the context here. This is in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus was born. And Herod the Great, the, the grandfather of Agrippa the Great, built this thing. And, and this is like right next to the temple where all the life happened in Jerusalem. And the, he built this thing with the purpose of being able to see what was going on in the city no matter what time of the day. And, and, and he just wanted to protect himself. So he had soldiers positioned at, on every tower. It was like almost as tall as the temple. I mean, it was this huge uh, building in the middle of, of downtown Jerusalem. And if that wasn't enough, he kind of had his little bug-out castle in the middle of Jerusalem. He also had a bug-out city, all right? This, this town called Masada, I don't know if you've ever heard of it before, but throw a picture up. This was about 60 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, that's the Dead Sea in the background there. And he actually had his guys build an entire city that no one really lived at for the purpose of if Jerusalem was taken over, his life would be spared and he'd have someone to go. I've been here before. I visited had hot water, had a spa. I mean, had all kinds of crazy stuff for this time period. He wanted to protect himself. He wanted control and he wanted leverage over the people that he was to govern. Now, so that's a little bit about the Herod boys, all right? Deeply insecure men with a lot of power. So the apostles are in town for the, the, the feast of unleavened bread. Uh, the Passover uh, is one of those days during that seven-day feast. And... Um, and it was one of the three festivals that all Jews would come into uh, the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. It's kind of a family reunion. They did it three times a year. And, um, and so what happens is, is Agrippa wants to leverage the fact that everybody's going to be in town. Uh, and, and there's this little, uh, you know, that they, they would call kind of a, a sect of Judaism called Christianity at the time is what they would have called it. Um, and, 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 and he thought, you know, I don't really have control over those guys, so i got to do something about that. And so Agrippa gets his hands on two-thirds of the inner group of disciples of Jesus. You remember the Mount, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus uh, goes up on the mountain and he takes three guys with him, Peter, James, and John. He takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and they, they hear God speak this truth over Jesus. You know, Moses and Elijah show up. It's this whole big thing. It's crazy. And they're like, hey, can we build a house up here? Jesus is like, you're out of your mind. Anyway, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They hear that. They are with Jesus when that happens. Agrippa gets his hands on two-thirds of these guys and says, this is how I kill Christianity right here. This is how I do it because they are a threat to my power because I don't have any power over these guys. I mean, he would have known about Stephen, the first martyr. You know, he would, he would have known about other, other people that had suffered and the gospel had spread because of it. And so he gets his hands on James and he takes his life. And, and, and it's real. And, and why? Because he followed Jesus. Because the gospel is extremely offensive to this Jewish legalism that they're perpetuating. Because it says we don't have anything to offer in and of ourselves. And so, really the sermon that I'm preaching today is on this phrase, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. 
That's my text today. When he saw that it pleased the Jews. And why am I preaching this? Because Herod saw something whenever he killed James that fed his ego and his insecurity. He, f- he found that it pleased the people that he wanted to please, and so he did more of it. And, and this is the position that you and I are in every single day, is that when we don't know whose we are, everybody gets to determine who we are. So he was living for the approval of the Jewish community. We are, we, church, we are so conditioned to find our significance and our security in what we can secure for ourselves in this world. I mean, think about it like this. There's this great contrast between James and Agrippa that's going on here. Agrippa is the man with the most power and leverage in this community, no doubt. And he has the least amount of security. James, on the other hand, is the, is the man with the least amount of power and leverage in a worldly standpoint, yet he has the most security. He could have denied Jesus on the spot and probably would have let him go scot-free. But instead, these guys suffer. How is it possible? And it's possible because of this. The promise of the gospel, church, this is our big idea, brings insecurity, shattering confidence to our hearts. That's what the gospel does to us. Um, so if you've got a Bible, I want you to flip open to Hebrews chapter 11. I want to read you something that uh, has really touched me uh, this, this week. So in, in Agrippa's search for significance, he, he does all these harmful things. And yet, yet the Christian, the person who has the Holy Spirit alive inside of them, is altogether different um, because of this. So let's read just a little bit about the history of God's people. So we, we kind of sum it up in these eight verses here, starting in verse 32. And what shall I say, Hebrews eleven thirty-two? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. That's what the promise of the gospel does inside of you. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. Why? Because God had provided something better for them. Hebrews 11 would go on to say. The world isn't worthy to receive God's children. That's what the Bible teaches us. Though you may be persecuted, slain, tormented, even from the inside out with insecurity, the world isn't worthy of your life because you've been bought by the blood of Christ. You're a blood-bought saint. That's what the Scriptures tell us. The world that typically sets a standard that you feel like you fall short of, you think about the standard that you try to live up to and you fall short of it. And and what you feel on the inside is, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have this position. 
I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not worthy because I don't look like this. I don't have this type of figure. I don't have this type of body. I don't have this type of size of jeans. And you feel like you're not worthy. And what the Bible says is the world's not worthy to tell you not worthy. And yet we let it eat us from the inside out. The world is not worthy, church, to be the gauge of your joy and contentment. It's not worthy. So what's it look like for us to let the gospel light into the layers of our insecurity this morning? Let's drill down a little bit deeper and unpack this insecurity a little bit more. Point two, let's talk about the prison of insecurity. So we've looked at a profile of an insecure person. Let's look at the prison of insecurity. So what's it like to live in this prison? What's it feel like? How do we think? You might pretend to agree with everyone you, you have a you have a hard time having an opinion of your own because you're afraid that others might not agree with it and that you might not have their approval some of us some of us struggle with that we struggle being our own person because any disagreement that we have could could lead to conflict and and if it led to conflict then there's no way that we could find approval in that person's sight or, or maybe kind of on that same note, you're, you're conflict avoidant altogether. Um, and it's because you feel responsible for the way that other people feel. And so there's this, there's this kind of twisted mentality that you have where you actually, before you say something, you try to control what the other person's going to think about what you say. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of this twisted thing that we have inside of us and all of us experience it's, it's not just women, it's not just men, it's all of us. It's how the enemy works. Or maybe you apologize often. Like you just Something comes up, you just say sorry, you just throw it out there. You just want to go ahead and assume responsibility. Assume that you're Jesus and you're the Savior. And that, and that you can handle it. And so you, what, what begins to happen is that your apologies don't carry any weight anymore because you say it all the time. That's been me before. Or you don't admit when you've been hurt by someone. You just kind of you take it like a man, you take it like a woman, and, and you just kind of just kind of live with it. You bear the weight. What you're doing is you're, you're kind of bearing the cross all by yourself. Something you were never intended to do. Now, now here's the reality about this prison of insecurity. It's pride in the most deceptive form. It's, it's selfishness in its most twisted fashion because at the end of the day, this unhealthy version of insecurity is all about who? Me. It's the humbling reality that I feel that I need to connect every experience, disappointment, win, high, and low to myself. And that's the most twisted thing about insecurity is because you don't think it's pride. But it really is because everything has to come back to me. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul was confronted by this truth when, uh, in the book of Corinthians. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at that for a few minutes. Um, he, he, was, he was confronted about this when, when people would come against him and say, say things about him and the character of his disciples and, and those followers of Jesus. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It, it's really enlightening to me. He says, this is how one should regard us, as, as servants of Christ and, and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, moreover, 
It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, what Paul's not saying here is this, like, hey, man, they can say whatever they want. I'm just going to do what I want. That's not what he's saying. That's not the attitude that he has. What he's saying is that he's now released from this prison of unhealthy insecurity where everything has to attach itself to him. And, and why is Paul now released from that? Well, the scriptures will go on to say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul would write this, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You see, what Paul saw himself as was a hidden man. Hidden in Christ. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't capable of judging himself accurately. Church, you need to hear that this morning. You're not capable of judging yourself with accuracy. And so while it seems very noble to be really hard on yourself, to not forgive yourself, and to beat yourself up, you are not the judge, so why do you do it to yourself? Paul says, I, I'm released, the gospel has released me from connecting everything to myself, which is where insecurity finds its power. It's where fear finds its root. And he goes on to, to say this in that same passage. He says, uh, may you learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That's a phrase that stuck out to me as I read this as well. Kind of underline that. Because I think what he's talking about here is that so many times we take this kind of judgment thing on ourselves beyond what is written. Or, or for others. And to go beyond what is written is to connect every experience to yourself. Every feeling to yourself. I'm not saying that we're, we're, we're careless and we go out guns ablaze and bruising everybody around us. Just saying that the enemy loves to work in the isolation of our insecurity. It's what he's so pleased to do. It's where he's so happy to mess with us and to steal our joy and to steal our contentment. And the beauty of the gospel is this, is that you, because of Jesus, get to take yourself out of the equation. Church, you're free to get out of the courtroom. You don't even belong in there anymore. The verdict is in, and you know what Jesus says? It's finished. It's finished. You are mine, I am yours. You've been bought with the price. You're not your own. You're now hidden with me. You're, you're hidden with God in Christ. And we say this sometimes at, at New City, that the, the sin that you can't forget, God can't remember because of the blood of Jesus. And that's the gospel. That's what we have laid up for us for today and forever. That God is that good to us. Because the reality is, is that insecurity drives us to live before the wrong eyes. See, Paul would say that, that, you know, my eyes and your eyes are, are faulty. This is why God is the only one that gets to judge us. And you know the, the standard that God judges with? It's way more strict than our standard. You know, we say, oh, God will just let me off. You know, it was just a little white lie, just a little sin there. And, and, and the standard that he holds us to is so strong that it took Jesus Christ giving himself to make us righteous. And so we don't have to lower the bar 
of righteousness. In fact, God brings us up. He brings us alive. He gives us life. The insecurity drives us to listen to the wrong voices. Do you hear Herod listening to the voices of the Jews? Why? Because he wanted their approval, because he wanted a good report. He wanted to be found faithful in the eyes of the Emperor Claudius. He wanted him to know how much he loved his job, and he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. Some of us do the same thing in a different way. We're willing to do whatever it takes to just get the approval of other people. And we sacrifice so much joy and contentment that Jesus has already given us through His Spirit. Insecurity drives us to achieve the wrong standard. We've looked at that a little bit. Most of us have a standard for ourselves that God never gave us. And we spend our lives trying to achieve it, falling short, and never really getting the joy that comes from the fruit of His Spirit alive in us. Pastor uh, Rick Warren was reading C.S. Lewis, and he kind of he came up with this idea of humility that I think is really helpful. He says this, True humility is not, making less of your, is not thinking less of yourself. That's, that's what insecurity is, right? It's thinking less of yourself. It's beating yourself down. But rather, it's thinking of yourself less. Church, what would it look like for you today to take yourself out of the equation? To, to maybe begin navigating this road where you don't have to connect everything back to yourself because you are now hidden in Christ. And it's not you who lives, but Christ who lives in and through you. What would that do for your joy? What would that do at your job? What would that do for your contentment? What would that do with your relationship with your kids? What would that do with your relationship with your husband or wife? What would that do with your relationship with your family and your friends? What would that look like if you didn't have to take everything so personally? Because you found your security in Jesus. Now, again, I'm preaching to the choir here. This is me. I need this sermon more than anybody in this room. <laughs> so what's it look like for us to walk out this pathway of, of insecurity, um, out of insecurity? Um, I think a lot of times what we do, this is the third point, and we're going to look at 1 John just for a second as I land the plane here. Um, I think a lot of times we look to our circumstances uh, to, to serve our security, to make us secure. You know what I've realized about our circumstances that we face? Whether it be a relational circumstance where there's conflict, or whether it be a physical circumstance of, of lack or need or, or something like that, circumstances only serve to reveal the source of security. They don't, they don't give you any power to attain security. Yeah, you, you think about the epidemic of suicide that is running rampant through our country right now. It's Mostly through people that have a lot of stuff. Um, had a, had a, lot of, a lot of things the world would say that is going for them, yet on the inside they are tormented because it didn't give them what they thought it would. Our circumstances only serve to reveal the source of security. They don't give us any power to attain it. But, but let me tell you who does. It's, 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 the, it's the blood of Jesus. And, and, and John would write this, one of those inner three disciples, he, he would write this uh, to the churches in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 13 through 19. And, and what we lack, church, is, is perfected love, is what he would say. So what is perfected love? Well, it's, it's love, 
Love that we can not only see and know, but love that we can feel, right? We, we feel secure, and, and when we feel secure, it gives us confidence against judgment. We all know people who have a false sense of confidence, right? They're not, they're not humble in the way that they look at themselves. They think they're a little higher up than others. That, that's a, that's a, an abusive type of confidence, but the confidence that the Holy Spirit intends to give us through the love of God being applied to our lives is, is an otherworldly confidence. Because what we find out about insecurity is that it's a form of fear. It's a fear that we can't live up, that we're not enough. And what the gospel does is it applies the love of God to us in increasing manners as we walk with Him. We're sanctified, we're being perfected in love. You know, we, we, we've said this at New City before, you know, as Christians, we're not what we were, thank God, right? We're not what we were, but we're also not what we want to be. And so we live in between the times, we're in between, in that tension of those two places. And love is being perfected in us as the gospel is applied to our hearts. So let's look at 1 John 4 and see how John writes this. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. He's given us himself. And when... We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him. And He in God, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And we just stop right there for a second. Have we actually come to know and believe the love that God has for us? Do you see yourself as a lovable person this morning? Or do you see a checklist of things that you've got to accomplish and achieve to become lovable? What makes you lovable? One of my favorite stories about Israel is in Deuteronomy 7, I think. And it's, uh, it's, it's Moses writing, God's talking, and he says, you know, it wasn't because Moses was, was, was the biggest of all the nations, or I'm sorry, Israel was the biggest of all the nations, or, or they had the most possessions, or they were the strongest, that made them lovable. No. You know what made them lovable, he would go on to say, is the fact that God found them lovable. That he wanted to love them. That's what makes you lovable, church. The fact that God loves you. But because God is love, and he sees you, and he knows you, you are now lovable. But so many times we have these resistors and these, these stiff arms that we put up and say, I can only be lovable if this is true in my life. I can only be lovable if I look like this. I can only be lovable if this happens in my life or I achieve this standard. It's not what the scriptures say, though. It says that because God has sent Jesus and his spirit, we can now abide in God and God in us through his spirit, the spirit of Jesus, and that's what makes us lovable, because he gives us the spirit of love and the power of love. And he goes on to say in 1 John, we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in God, who lives in God, stays in God, remains in God, God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. Key word, perfected. Love is perfected in us. It's made whole. It's brought to fruition in us. And why does God perfect love in us? He does it when we're justified, when we first come to faith in Jesus, but it's still got this, this ongoing implications that, that, that are becoming more true in our reality. And he does this so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. 
Because as he is, so also are we in this world. He knows that something about living in this world steals our confidence that God actually loves us. That's the whole reason why he sent the Holy Spirit, the helper, the guarantee, so that we could be confident in the love that has for us. And when you're confident in the love that God has for you, it changes everything about you. It changes everything about the way that you receive criticism, the way that you receive a well done, the way that you receive just love. It changes everything about that. And he goes on to say, there is no fear in love. And we've said that insecurity is a form of fear. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There's, there's no place for fear and insecurity in our hearts when perfect love takes fruit. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Fear has to do with punishment. That's the key words there. Whenever we let insecurity rip our hearts out and steal our joy and take over our lives, we're living in a place of fear because we think we ought to be punished. This is what John's telling us here. So my hope, church, is that as we walk this out, as we go, as the series is called, that God may grow our ability to receive love in our hearts. Because when we're able to receive the love of Jesus, perfected love comes alive in us. It gives us confidence. And you know what a confident person who's been perfected in the love of Jesus or is being perfected in the love of Jesus does? It helps to make everyone else a little more confident in their relationship with Jesus. And when you have a group of people that are willing to step out and say that, it changes the culture of a church, and it changes the culture of a community, and it changes the culture of a city when you realize that there's nothing about you that makes you lovable but only the love of God. I'll close with a story. Uh, there's a lady in our um, missional community who was, who was uh, sharing a story. She was working out at a coffee shop, I think, um, in one of the downtown areas around Gwinnett, and it was after school, and these, these um, there was this group of kids, and there was this one kid that was, that was kind of walking and doing his own thing, and this other group of kids that was like trying to kind of bully him and, 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 and convince him to do something uh, that he didn't do. And, and he kind of went on with it for a little bit, saying, hey, guys, would y'all just leave me alone? And, and, uh, and, and they just kept nagging him. They just kept going after him. They just kept tempting him to give in. And finally, uh, this lady kind of recalled it, said this. He, he, he blurts out this, this phrase. He says, he says, listen, I'm, I'm a son of the Most High God. I'm not giving in. Leave me alone. It was like a mic drop moment. They like, they like went the other way. Like, like I, I don't know that many of us have that kind of confidence, but, but what if we grew in it a little bit through the love of God and, and uh, we, we, we put a muzzle on the enemy? Um, I think that's the power that the Holy Spirit gives us, church, and that's what I want more of in my heart, and I, I hope you want it as well. Let's, let's pray together. Father, um, we're not what we want to be, but we're not where we were. And Lord, we, we credit that to the power of your Spirit. Lord, this, this epidemic of insecurity that haunts us and isolates us is one of the greatest tactics of your adversary, the enemy, the devil, the father of lies himself the accuser of the brethren. And Lord, we just pray in the name of Jesus today that you would cast out the enemy. You would, you would cast out the enemy with, the, with, 
with, with, with the men and women in this church that, that are tempted to look at themselves and think that they're not lovable. I, I pray that you would cast out the enemy when we look in the mirror and we say, man, I just wish I looked different. That we remember the words of Psalm 139 that were fearfully and wonderfully made. And if that's what you say about us, how dare we, we say anything else? God, give us power through your love. Give us confidence through your love. God, help us to take ourselves out of the equation. Let us grow in humility. Let's be sober-minded in the way that we think about ourselves so that Jesus may increase and we may decrease, and that wouldn't be a problem with us. God, give us power and give us hope this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.